that's where, you know, gas has to live and breathe going forward and LNG being a form of gas is that it's going to have to live in a world where it can replace coal at coal plus carbon parity. And, you know, if you're looking for a price, you know, of where that's going to be, like that to me is sort of the sweet spot because that, you know, LNG has to be inexpensive enough to reach and to incentivize that market. So coal plus whatever you want to, whatever number you want to put on carbon on top of that is really where you want, where you want to be because you're going to need to induce coal retirements in order to have the LNG market grow. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? Hi, Ira. Thank you very much for joining us on Smarter Markets. It's great to finally meet you of sorts since we've been Twitter pals for some time. It's uh, great to uh, almost meet you in person. I, Even though we're on the podcast, for folks on the podcast, I can see Ira. We're on screen together. So I do feel like I'm, I'm meeting you a little bit, Ira. Well, Susan, it's so nice to meet you as well. And, uh, you know, like you said, we've uh, We've only uh, come to know each other's uh, work through uh, this uh, odd COVID period in, in which we started Twittering a lot about uh, global gas and LNG markets. So uh, thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, I'm ex- excited to talk about all this. this. This should be fun. All right, let's dig right in and, and maybe right into the sort of one of the most important issues, uh, I guess, of the day, which is uh, price movements. And we've seen unprecedented price movements in LNG markets this year on the back of, you know, coming out of COVID. And so I'm wondering if you can walk us through some of the price issues that you see and, and maybe even step back to just remind us what the market looked like in 2019 and if maybe some of the issues that were there in 2019 have bled into the, the current markets or if there's any uh, relationship between them. Yes, yeah, Susan, I think your question, you know, is is a really good one. And and I think, you know, when we look at the sort of history of LNG pricing and gas pricing, you know, more broadly, we're going to have to kind of throw 2020 and 2021 kind of out of the mix and really look, you know, back to kind of the before times and then, you know, to give us some type of insight into sort of where we're, we're going to go in the future. And, you know, and in the before times, we were living in a world where, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether prices, in, you know, in Asia are going to be, you know, six to nine dollars, seven to ten dollars or, or, you know, even higher than that. And, you know, but certainly, you know, I, I don't think anyone could have foreseen prices going up above 30, 35 dollars. And I, I really haven't talked to anybody or, or have known anybody to really believe that, you know, these type of price levels are sustainable going forward. But, you know, I was somewhat surprised that they were even sustainable for, for this long of a period of time without some sort of massive scramble on demand. So, you know, where we are now is, is like you said, unprecedented. And, you know, looking forward, we're going to have to sort of figure out what, what becomes, you know, the new normal in the market, which I, I do think is very much like the old normal. But, uh Clearly, you know, this is causing a lot of distortions and a lot of second thoughts around, you know, in future vet investments in liquefaction, future investments downstream uh, in terms of, you know, creating demand for the gas itself. So, you know, there they, there are a lot of second and third thoughts here about things are going on. But by and large, you know, like you said, the 2019 and before, I think, is is instructive about where we're going. The question in everyone's mind is, you know, is this just a moment in time? So 2021 certainly seems unusual in this price surge. 
And is your sense is that we'll we'll go back to a nor- more normal market maybe in 2022? I do. I, you know, whether it's 2022 or 2023, you know, it's going to be hard to pinpoint, you know, something that precise. But, you know, you have two basically large elements here that are affecting price on the supply and demand side. On the supply side, because of a lot of the maintenance was deferred on a lot of capacity out there and a lot of capacity, frankly, just broke down. We're operating at a really relatively low utilization rate for the existing capacity out there. And again, that was caused by a lot of maintenance delays or postponements that still have to be done. And, you know, when we get and if we get, you know, supply back up to a utilization rate that's more that one would describe as more normal, then that I think will solve some of the supply side issues that we're seeing. And then on the demand side, you know, we went from very low demand in 2020 to, you know, a lot of buying in 2021 because the risk assessment of the market was that, you know, the market, you know, would be tighter and there wasn't enough supply out there. I think, again, the market will balance out. You know, it's hard to say whether it's 2022, 2023, but I think that type of time frame, that sort of 12 to 24 month time frame is comfortable. Obviously, a lot's going to depend on weather this winter, as you know, as it depended a lot on winter uh, weather last winter as well. I know you recently spoke at the Giganel meeting. And for folks that don't know, Giganel is the international group of liquefied natural gas importers, although say that in French because it's uh, based in Paris. It's really composed of all of the importing companies. And so do you have a sense that high prices tend to scare off buyers? And certainly some of the big exporters like Qatar have said that. They have said they don't really like these high prices because it does tend to scare off buyers. Do you have any sense of whether buyers are on the sidelines saying we're not doing anything until we see prices come back to normal? Although we have seen some recent contracts from buyers. So I I guess how are these prices impacting contracts and the mood in the industry? So short term, the market is tighter. Obviously, that's reflected in the higher price. But when you're, you're talking structurally like about contracts, yeah, I think, you know, like you said, in the past you know, five, six weeks, we've seen a significant amount of LNG signed up under longer term contract, most of that being with China. So we had expected pre-COVID, you know, this would be the period that new FIDs would be signed. And uh, this sort of fallow period that we had in 2020 or 2021 really wasn't that surprising. I mean, both sides were kind of waiting it out and waiting it out and waiting it out. And and when you look at sort of in the aggregate at like the, the amount of LNG under long-term contract, 2021 is sort of the peak year. And then contract expirations kind of ha- start beginning to happen at a steeper and steeper rate over the next decade. So both the buyers and the sellers knew that new contracts had to be signed. So in a lot of ways, despite COVID happening and all the short-term sort of bizarre, you know, sort of things that are going on in the market now, the contract market is actually behaving the way we had thought it would, which is that new contracts are being signed. Now, it's interesting to see we're seeing both, you know, pretty long-term contracts, 10, 15-year deals being done, and then we're seeing, you know, short-term deals, and we're seeing large volumes and small volumes. That has surprised me, you know, somewhat, but it does show that there's the flexibility in the market, you know, whether it's with the contract or the volumes, you know, or the pricing is really something that the buyers want and the sellers are really, you know, providing that now because, as I said, a lot of volume, particularly a lot of Qatari volume, is going to be rolling off into expiration from existing contracts over the next decade. And there's a new dynamic out there in terms of pricing. Certainly that's being affected by, you know, the U.S. prices and U.S. volumes, which, you know, you talk a lot about on Twitter. 
And picking up on the, the issue of long-term contracts, Japan's JIRA just said it, it wouldn't renew uh, one of its long-term deals with Qatar and instead said, you know, they won't be short because they took an interest in Freeport, over 25% interest in Freeport. Do you think we'll see a shift in maybe some of the Asian buyers looking elsewhere? And do you see any new buyers stepping up? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, that that Jira contract it really uh, it it was really interesting because as I, as I've said before, and and I said in that in the Gignol speech in Paris is like you know there's two ways to secure supply. There's a long term contract or you can buy equity in the liquefaction, and and Jira sort of did the latter of the two. And if you have enough money out there and and you you can sort of put all the capital up front, you know, equity is a good way to go because it does provide you with the most amount of flexibility because you own equity in the trade and you can take as much or as little volume as you want. And then you can sell the rest either FOB or on a delivered basis how, how you want out there. But of course, not every buyer out there, you know, has the, has the kind of capital that Jared does. So I do expect more of that to happen, you know, for buyers out there who want to, you know, reflect on their security of supply through, through ownership. I mean, it's kind of more of a, the old fashioned way that, you know, the LNG market used to be where the big buyers out there would take equity in trains and, and sort of the whole value chain, it would be much more integrated. Of course, in the U.S. case, it's still not fully integrated because they still have to buy the gas in order to liquefy it, in order to sell it to themselves. So there is some exposure there, whereas opposed to, you know, if a buyer were to have equity in a, in a Qatari train, it would be, you know, really basically from the field all the way to the burner tip. So it's slightly different. But uh, it is something that de- definitely caught my eye, certainly, uh, particularly because buying baseload LNG from the U.S. and sending it to Asia I've always been sort of like, well, you know, 12 months a year, does that make sense, you know, versus on a seasonal basis? Is that really going to work? Because doesn't it really make more sense for U.S. volumes to swing to Europe in the summer and to Asia in the winter? But I, I think for, on a risk basis, it makes a lot of sense for Jera. It seems to make a lot of sense for Jera uh, because in my mind, they, you know, the costs of, of obviously sending the gas from the Gulf Coast to, to Japan are going to be higher then, you know, necessarily they would be in, on a break-even basis than Qatar to Japan. But uh, it looks like Jera wants to diversify their supply. And uh, the U.S. does provide, uh, certainly does provide diversity when it comes to supply. You know, as you were talking, I'm reminded of just what we spoke about, sort of the pre-COVID market. And the 2019 LNG market, to me at least anyway, was looking like the market of the past, <laughs> where we had record FIDs, but they were all done on with majors, with you know IOCs and NOCs who could finance on balance sheet, which reminded me a little bit more of the, the old LNG days. And this JIRA deal strikes me as a little bit of that. And you highlighted that if it's a buyer with the resources, it might make sense to take an equity position. And it sort of begs the question of, you know, what other buyers are out there with those resources? I know Vietnam is going to be probably the the next importer in 2022. But, you know, LNG is expensive. And I know you and I have talked about this and people don't always like to mention it, but uh, especially in the U.S., it's an expensive form of gas in, you know, trying to find a home in a competitive power market. The line I always like to say is that LNG is the most expensive form of gas supply trying to chase the most competitive form of gas demand, which is in most cases power generation outside of the the Chinese market. So, you know, threading that needle is very, very difficult for the LNG business and will continue to be difficult going forward. And to to come back to your other point about sort of the, you know, the pre-COVID days, 
there were a lot of FIDs signed and they were signed with majors, but even that was a change because the majors are not end users. The majors, you know, whether they have equity in the trains or whether, you know, they're just going to create gigantic portfolios or, or around the world, they still have to on-sell that gas to an end user in most cases. There are some cases where, you know, they can buy and consume the gas themselves. But at the end of the day, it is adding this layer, you know, this larger layer to the market where there's going to have to be more resale, you know, and more liquidity sort of in the market that's on the water. You know, whereas before, you know, you had a market where Abu Dhabi was selling directly to TEPCO or Qatar was selling directly to Sinook. You know, there is the, these layers and, you know, these they're the majors that have had this layer, the trading companies Many of them Geneva-based have added this layer. So it is a slightly different structure than we had before, even though the FIDs are being signed on both the contracts and then, of course, subsequently on the train. So I would say that there's a bit of difference. Long-term contracts are still part of the market. I still think they're going to be part of the market. And I think we'll have that in the future. And if anything, what COVID has done is sort of, and this spike that we've seen here is that you know, even you know, sometimes if a long-term contract doesn't make sense for five, six, seven straight years, there is going to be that year where it's going to make a lot of sense. And right now it makes a lot of sense because when you look at JKM prices relative to what most average import prices are for those who are buying gas under long-term contract, the long-term contract prices are significantly below where JKM and even in Asia below where TTF is right now. So sometimes, you know, you have to kind of look at the long game here where, it may be kind of a famine for many, many years, but then, or a feast, or you could reverse those two, depending on whether you're a buyer or seller. But I think you get the idea of what I'm saying. Right, right. Absolutely. And and your point, I mean, since you are a power expert, <laughs> I, I'm going to pick on that expertise a bit because you made the really good point, which is in the end, LNG has to find a final home, a resting home, and usually it's power, right? LNG is, it's used for, for power. So, you know, what is the energy? play that you're seeing in the market now between LNG and coal, because high LNG prices and high gas prices tend to bring on more coal. Uh, a lot of the world is focused on renewables. And, you know, sort of tied to that is we have these net zero goals. So in a way, LNG, uh, it's having its moment now. But, you know, what is your outlook in terms of LNG, you know, finding a home in, in power? And can it displace more coal around the world? Is there still room for more natural gas to displace coal? That's where, you know, gas has to live and breathe going forward. And LNG being a form of gas is that it's going to have to live in a world where it can replace coal at coal plus carbon parity. And, you know, if you're looking for a price, you know, of where that's going to be like that to me is sort of the sweet spot because that, you know, LNG has to be inexpensive enough to reach and to incentivize that market. So coal plus whatever you want to whatever number you want to put on carbon on top of that is really where you want where you want to be because you're going to need to induce coal retirements in order to have the LNG market grow. Now, because given that Asia is really sort of the key area for the growth, I mean, LNG does work well because there isn't, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of pipeline systems outside of China and, and India in the market, and you can sell sort of rateable volumes of LNG, and it does have that ability, like like oil, to in a lot of ways to sort of, you know, get into niche markets. But I think the other big change is the idea that LNG is going to find a market, you know, for twenty four seven baseload power is one that where we see year after year after year the growth rate for gas, you know, ha has been coming down. And instead of looking at gas, you know, as a 24-7 solution in terms of power generation, you kind of have to look at it more, you know, as an intermittency solution. And so, 
you know, one thing I always like to focus on and say, particularly for people who are outside the LNG or the gas industry, is that you have to look at LNG is not really competing with renewables. The renewables are going to grow. That's going to happen. The panels are going to be manufactured. The, the turbines are going to be manufactured. It's really the battery and the storage market where LNG needs to compete. And that's that's the dynamic that the market really needs to look at is sort of LNG versus storage. And when I say storage, I mean battery storage here and not LNG versus renewables. We that That is a false dynamic that I don't think everyone has completely woken up to in the market. But when we look at LNG and the role of LNG because of its attributes in the future in terms of cost, but also in terms of its flexibility, that's kind of where I think LNG lives and breathes in the future. It also will help, you know, if it can be priced low enough to retire coal, but also working as an intermittency solution in competition with batteries. Okay, interesting. So that I guess that begs the question is, you know, what are you seeing in the battery storage market? Oh, that's that's not something I think we really can talk about or I can talk about on this on this podcast. I'm I, I tend to lean more towards gas and and LNG, but I mean, at the highest level, obviously, like I said, you know, the market to me is about three things. It's about the market, it's about policy and about technology. And the key technology thing to watch for gas, the gas business, yeah, one of the key things I should say is storage technology and, and battery storage, because that is where, you know, LNG and, and gas in general is going to live or die in the future, you know, when it when it comes to power generation. Should also point out that that gas does have a life in residential commercial in China. You know, every tower and every building you see up going along the coast of China is being lined with, you know, a gas feed. So, you know, China in some ways is a bit of an outlier compared to other markets because in the residential commercial market there is growing very fast. The residential commercial market also has a higher bearable price usually than power as well because those who are buying the gas tend to be able to pay a higher price at the burner tip than necessary would be paid in the power sector. So that's a really good point about China and the residential gas market is growing strong. Do you see that strong growth in India as well? Uh, India is a, you know, a little a different story because it does have some midstream constraints. You know, certainly the capacity is there to import a lot of LNG, but moving that LNG downstream, you know, to end users, you know, there tends to be a lot of choke points. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, the U.S.-Mexico situation with pipeline gas going across the border. There's uh, probably 15 BCF a day of capacity to move gas into Mexico. But right now, the U.S. is only moving around six, six and a half because, uh, you know, midstream and further or farther downstream in Mexico, it's hard to see the infrastructure there to burn all that gas. Uh, the same thing is true, certainly in India. The added issue in India is, of course, also pricing of the pricing of gas in India, which is kept relatively low. There aren't market necessarily market prices for most consumers in India, and so what happens is that the, the import prices, and certainly now if you're buying spot LNG, is considerably higher than the burner tip price uh, for gas inside of India for a lot of the end users. So there's a loss being incurred there, or there's a subsidy, I should say, being incurred there by someone, and so. China tends to have a higher bearable price for gas because, uh, frankly, the price of the gas has has been increased by the government and has been allowed it to float higher to a level where, you know, those who are importing the gas actually can make some margin downstream. In China, I'm sorry, in India, that's somewhat less clear right now. Which I guess explains, you know, for a number of years, everybody was very excited about the Indian gas market. And there's still some excitement, but it's been tempered a bit. But it's not quite as mature a market as China. So uh, definitely a big market to keep our keep our eye on. 
Let me ask you, let me maybe shift focus a little bit, because we talked about the interplay between sort of LNG, there, there's still maybe room to displace some coal depending on price. And then we touched on renewables. And I want to just get your input on sort of methane emissions uh, and, and net zero targets, which is very much in focus. And I think Platts has, has done some work on this as well. And the LNG industry is definitely working to decarbonize. And so I'm wondering what your your views on on this is and and how it how it will play out. How do you see the LNG industry, you know, decarbonizing in the next, you know, decade? Yeah, I mean, I think for ourselves at Platts without sounding too much like a commercial here, on the gas side we've f- focused on production and methane intensity and gas production in the US. And we've started assessing prices on something called methane performance certificates. For any of you who are listening out there who are more interested in that, you can just Google methane performance certificates and you can see what we're doing there. And so we're treating it as an attribute of the gas and not the gas itself. So it's uh, it's its own separate market like Rex or RINs would be. And to the same notion, you know, we're certainly looking at LNG, but you know, at Platts, we've started, you know, quoting and assessing low carbon crude cargoes. We're doing the same thing with low carbon LNG cargoes. So, you know, we're definitely moving in that direction to, to, to show the difference in terms of the attributes of, of what a low carbon LNG cargo would look like versus a, you know, one that isn't being priced in the same way as that. But our first focus really now has been on the top of the methane intensity heap, which is really tends to be around production, which I think in the last uh, assessment that we did the, from the subpart WUS data accounted for about 60% of the emissions in the value chain, but certainly, you know, the midstream, downstream, liquefaction, et cetera, regassed, you know, there's, there's other emissions that have to be accounted for. So it's definitely a process that we're looking at and looking at, at assessing going forward, you know, from a pricing perspective. So Platts has their their methane performance certificate. Is this going to be similar to Chenier? Chenier has promised a cargo tag in twenty twenty two. I haven't heard about that. That's a that's a new one for me. I, I don't. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. So what is that? Well, I don't know. So when I saw Platts, you know, methane performance certificate, it just jumped to mind. Was I wonder how that's going to look compared to what Chenier's cargo tag is going to look like, which I think is trying to do the same thing, but not 100% sure. But I think Chenier has promised that in 2022. So I guess we'll leave it as, you know, there's sort of certificates based on, you know, the upstream emissions and the, the full value chain emissions. A couple other LNG producers, I mean, some people are looking at carbon capture I don't know if that's going to be a, a good option or or not. And certainly the voluntary carbon markets, uh, we had about, uh, I think there's been about 20 cargos traded where the offset was going to the voluntary carbon markets and offsetting with a nature-based product. I don't know if you have a view of if that market's going to be growing in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, offset markets are going to grow, you know, if and when there are legitimate offsets out there for the for the carbon emissions, but in terms of like absolute reduction in carbon emissions, I think, you know, a lot of the companies are trying to look past sort of offset markets to do, to really sort of tighten up what they're doing in, in terms of the whole gas value chain. I mean, I know when we set our threshold for methane performance certificates, we set our threshold at 0.1% methane, you know, intensity emissions on U.S. gas production. And that accounted for about 45 BCF a day of total U.S. gas production. But many of the companies that are making the investments already in tightening up their methane intensity and any type of flaring or, or venting that they're doing, they've hit a threshold that's even much lower than that, you know, probably half of that. So 
I think the investments are being made. And I think, you know, we're, we're, we in, you know, are trying to create products out there, certainly that will allow uh, companies, and in this case, producers, but then LNG producers like Chenier, where they want to capture some of the, you know, the cost of the additional investments, you know, in the market for these type of certificates. So, you know, I think it's a very positive, you know, uh, a step going forward. But there are many, many type of carbon markets out there. And, and we're going to see a lot of, you know, trade off among all of these carbon markets because they're not all, you know, they're, they're all, not all carbon markets are, are created equal. You know, there, there are many different types of carbon markets out there that, that are trading right now and how they interplay with each other is still something that is definitely, you know, to be determined, certainly kind of thing. I agree. I think we'll see a lot more sort of scrutiny of carbon markets going forward and a lot more players involved in it in terms of verifying offsets. I think there'll be a, a big role for people verifying all of this. Yeah, for sure. We're, we are not in the verification business. We're in the pricing business, but at Platt's. But there are a lot of a lot of companies out there in the in the verification business doing all types of verification, doing on-site verification, satellite verification. There are many, many. It's it, you know those of you who are interested out there. You know there's a lot to learn out there, and there's a lot of different solutions out there. They're being offered that it's really exciting time in that aspect of the market. To me, that just you know I, I think it's a good development, and certainly a. Uh, you know, I wrote a book about 10 years ago, and I had a chapter on LNG emissions, and I really struggled to find any information at all. And so a lot of progress seems to have been made in the last 10 years. And I think there'll be a whole lot more made in the next 10 years in terms of measuring, monitoring, you mentioned, you know, reducing emissions is very much in focus in the LNG world. And so I think those are all really good positive developments that should help the LNG industry find its place in a net in that zero world. Yeah, I mean, I think there are buyers out there who are willing to pay for it as well. And I think that's an important side of this. You know, we can talk all day and night about gas producers and LNG producers, but if the buyers aren't, you know, willing to incur the additional cost on the other side and be able to pass through to some extent that to their ratepayers, you know, this isn't going to happen. But I, you can see in terms of the market, you, you know, at the shareholder level, at the investor level, you know, that there is a demand for this out there. And I think it's affecting the whole value chain. And I think that's why, you know, the liquidity in these types of markets, you know, whether they're certificate markets, voluntary carbon markets, why they're going to grow exceptionally. I agree. That certainly seems to be something to to watch for going forward. You know, we're already uh, at uh, year end 2021. And so folks are already looking ahead to 2022. And so I'm just curious, what is your look ahead? You know, what are you watching for in LNG and gas markets looking ahead to, to 2022? Well, I mean, a couple things, uh, you know, one on gas markets, you know, I, I, I'm really curious about how the, these prices are going to affect demand, even in the short term, because they've had shockingly little effect on demand thus far in my mind. Uh, as, as, you know, as I do talk about on Twitter, you know, maybe a little too much, uh, and whether that's going to continue in the future. The inelasticity of demand or the elasticity of demand, you know, relative to price is something that, you know, it, it has really, really surprised me about these high prices. So certainly on the gas side, I'm looking at that. Obviously, the, the issue of Russian gas production versus Russian gas exports are really going to be critical going forward. I know, you know, we haven't talked about that yet, but, you know, Russia is producing a record amount of gas this year, but their export strategy, you know, has certainly changed as we all know. And because Europe in general 
is importing, you know, more LNG and is becoming more and more reliant on LNG. You know, what Russia does in terms of its production and its exports isn't just affecting Europe anymore. It's affecting the entire world. You know, as we've seen certainly over the past few months with, you know, I, I could probably count on, you know, my two hands, the number of people who even cared about European gas storage, you know, before July of last year, you know, who weren't really in the market. And now, you know, European gas storage has become something that my father asks me about sometimes. So, you know, it, and it, so, you know, that it's like kind of like it's become this sort of globalized thing that's kind of outside the business. So, uh, you know, th those are certainly things I'm looking at. Obviously, more FIDs, you know, what, whether, you know, some of the, you know, the liquefaction, you know, projects that we were and the LNG projects that we talk about all the time on Twitter, you know, whether they're going to go on FID, whether they're not. That obviously is something that, that you know, we're going to look at, you know, how quickly, you know, I don't think the Qataris are going to go, you know, do an official FID on whatever they're going to do. They're just going to build it um, because they're financing the whole thing. And the FID aspect of it isn't as important as other producers out there who are going to need, you know, third party financing. But, you know, how quickly that progress is made and, you know, whether we start seeing those trains flowing in in 24, or 25 or 26 is, is really important because it's a huge volume. Uh, I'm also looking, frankly, at, you know, we had the, those announcements about uh, Scarborough and Pluto last week, which, you know, they didn't come out of left field, but, you know, you have to remember that Asia is really the place you want to produce the LNG because it's, it's where everyone wants to buy the LNG. And there's a distinct potential advantage there, at least on the shipping side, you know, the closer you can be to the market. So certainly, you know, that's another thing. And I think sort of those are the big areas. And then on the U.S. side, you know, how much upside there is for additional U.S. gas production going forward. Like I said, we hit, went above 94, 95, and the all-time record is at like 96 and a half, which was two years ago today, actually. It's, yeah, today. Two years ago today was like record all-time U.S. gas production. Whether that's going to continue to go up or whether the, the financing issues or whether, you know, Wall Street's sort of love with shale, you know, is sort of sunsetting or whether some of the margins that you see, you know, now in, in, in producing and selling gas are going to attract people back into drilling. Because certainly we've seen the duck rate really come down quite a bit. Uh, the drilled but uncompleted wells, uh, I should say, that rate has come down a lot. And, you know, whether that will get built up back again. To some extent, the North American market, because of the limits on export capacity, LNG and pipeline export capacity, you know, are somewhat shielded from what goes on in, in Europe and, and Asia, but they are important nonetheless because they, they will trigger or not trigger, uh, you know, a lot of LNG development in the U.S. because uh, obviously the, whatever the outlook for the price of domestic gas in the U.S. does potentially affect, you know, the value or the profitability of LNG exports to other parts of the world. This last point you made about the duck rate, the drilled but uncompleted has come down, meaning these wells had already been drilled and now they're they're being brought online as opposed to drilling more wells. And normally, you know, in the past, high prices always brought on more drilling. And this market is a bit different because we haven't seen that yet. And do you think it's just capital discipline return to shareholders? Or do you think we just haven't seen it yet that we will get to that point where prices will bring on more drilling, like they always have. Yeah. I mean, the last thing you said, I think is sort of by and large true. I mean, I think I think it's going to be slower now, but I do think it, it's just a lot of it obviously has to do with the oil price as well. I mean, I think as uh, as we've talked about before, oil drives gas. It's pretty rare that gas ever, ever drives oil. And so I think obviously wet gas production, you know, whether it's in the Northeast and has to do with uh, NGLs or whether it's crude based, 
uh, wet gas, you know, in, in the Permian Basin, you know, that's what really drives the market. And in the U.S., as we, we talked about the other day on Twitter, there's an inverse price relationship between crude and gas in the U.S. So high, high oil prices tend to lead to lower gas prices and lower gas prices kind of reflect, uh, I'm sorry, uh, higher gas prices tend to reflect, you know, uh, lower oil prices because the two are inextric- inextricably tied together on the upstream side. And so the fundamentals of one can sort of mess with the fundamentals of the other in ways because they're not connected downstream anymore the way they used to, but they still have this very, very real upstream connection. I, you, as you mentioned on Twitter, you're, you're sort of surprised how inelastic da- demand has been to prices. But, you know, I guess I question, you know, in Europe, like what what's the alternative? You know, as a world, as a society, we, you know, and I, I, I get a lot of pushback sometimes about natural gas and sort of my response lately has been like, okay, give me another al- hydrogen, give me another alternative that's available now. And nobody ever does. <laughs> and and so I'm wondering if maybe that's why we're not, we're, you know, high prices are high prices and you can either pay high prices or reduce consumption. But there's not many other options out there. No, you're right. And that, and then I think sort of, I think, you know, as aggressive as Europe has been towards moving towards renewables, it, I think this is kind of like an indication that they've gotten over their skis a little bit because, you know, they were planning for the future without sort of reckoning with the past a little bit here. You know, the aggressive retirement, you know, the more aggressive retirement of coal plants, of lignite plants, of nuclear plants, and even some gas plants, you know, left the the reserve capacity margin, which is, you know, the difference between peak electricity demand and, and sort of baseload demand. That was left a little thin. And I think sort of lessons have been learned from that, certainly on the power side. And on the gas side, I mean, I think the big lesson here is when you look at European gas storage, if you look at if you look at European gas storage, you know, excluding Gazprom owned and operated gas storage, the gas storage numbers are, are pretty kind of normal. But you know, when you look at what what Gazprom has done and the changes it's made in terms of the way it is storing and marketing and consuming gas, that has changed a lot. As I said, they're both storing more gas in Russia and they're consuming more gas in Russia as well. And they didn't move as much gas during injection season into their European storage assets. And that kind of is is sort of the center of the issue here. And I think this is the issue that the European policymakers are going to have to address going forward is to me, not whether there's, you know, whether and how, you know, what the change is, is that certainly the way the market is structured now is do you want your largest gas supplier to also be owning commercial storage in the market that it's supplying? I think, you know, that is a very valid question, I think, for EU policymakers to look at going forward, you know, if this is going to be kind of a change in the way, you know, uh, you know, Russian gas producers and specifically Gazprom are going to manage how they market gas going forward. So I think, you know, these are, you know, really critical policy issues once everything sort of calms down a bit uh, going forward. But as to your point, yes, I mean, you know, as part of the transition, you know, what is the alternative to natural gas, you know, as part of the transition? And like you said, it's going to be, you know, either more aggressive renewable rebuilds and hydrogen. It's going to be some policy decision that's going to even cut gas demand even more and gas demand peaked a long, long time ago in Europe and had been coming down prior to COVID anyway. And will there be sort of a more aggressive downside to gas in terms of, you know, banning new connections in major European cities like we've seen in U.S. cities uh, and other things that could sort of cut it? But you again, you do you need alternatives here, you know, to deal with both the baseload supply 
that can be problematic with renewables providing baseload power supply, but also the intermittency issues when storage or, or gas will need to be available as well. So, you know, it is complicated. And, and the transition, while I think many people would like it to be instantaneous, you know, is longer. And, and you know, and so even when we talk about 2050, you know, which which seems like a, a, a very long period of time from now, it's it, when you look at it longer term, you know, it, it does seem to sort of be an appropriate time frame over which to look at sort of easing out of one thing and e- easing into another. I kind of want to look, you know, historically, you know, this would be a good book for you, Susan, to look at sort of decarbonization from 100 years ago and not from now. Like, you know, when we went from, you know, wood to coal to oil and that kind of thing and how long that process took. That to me, I've, I've always found fascinating because when you look at old pictures, you know, of New York and of places back then when people went from wood burning and then they went to coal burning and then there was sort of cold, you know, dust everywhere in the streets of, of places like New York, which then converted over to oil, you know, how that happened And I think, you know, decarbonization is not something that, you know, started in 2006 when when Europe started investing in major ways into renewables. This has been going on for 125 years or longer. And this is just the latest iteration of that. And we we have to look at these things more in a broader historical context and not just in the moment or, or, or in some cases in the panic of the moment. Exactly. I think that's a great point. And, you know, you really point out that sort of energy transitions have taken place forever and will continue to take place, but they're slow. They enter, it's uh, all of the transitions from wood to coal to natural gas have some similarities, which is a lot of it was based on, you know, air pollution. Going from coal to natural gas helps clean the air. Availability of supply and price and infrastructure it's uh, most of the energy infrastructure we build is uh, 20, 30, 40 year old infrastructure that tends to stay on the ground for most of its you know useful life. We tend not to retire infrastructure unless it needs to be retired. And so the energy transition and decarbonization and net zero are sort of bold, I guess, bold goals. But, you know, since we're, you and I are, are gas people and LNG people, what I always just come back to is I'm all for any alternatives that are cleaner, cheaper, more available, easier. I just don't know what they are yet. And so in the meantime, I, I think we will have decades of, of gas. I think we're still in the energy transition is unfolding and it doesn't exclude gas. And what these price spikes have shown this winter is maybe it includes more gas until something else comes along. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. I mean, because when we hear about these targets, like 2040, 2050, it's like it's going to end there. And it's not. It's constant. It's not going to end there. Something else is going to come along. And, you know, who knows what that will be? Again, you know, that's the technology side that's really the great unknown here. And, uh, you know, it is just constantly evolving. And another part of this, which we haven't even talked about, is the nuclear side. Is nuclear part of the past? Is it part of the future? There's support for it on the left. There's support for it on the right. You know, there's there's people who are dead set against it, you know, and it can play a role in all of this as well in, in terms of the transition. So, you know, like while we're talking about gas here, these things all come into play because there are two overarching issues that we're talking about here and that we'll continue to talk about. One is decarbonization and the other, of course, is electrification. And how those two things interact together is really sort of the, you know, the top line discussion that we're, we're constantly having here, whether it's on social media or whether we're talking here on a podcast. 
that concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.